When I was a senior across the street, Wichita State, on spring break, a buddy and I went to uh, New York City on our own little mission trip. We went to share the gospel in a, a housing project. We stayed, spent the nights in a rehab center. And as we tried to sleep through the night, you could hear gunfire all around us. It was, at the time, it was the, had the highest murder rate in the U.S., that project. And I met a, a guy about my age, um, just out on the streets, and got to know him for a couple of days. And as I was sharing the gospel with him, talking to him about his life, he was trapped in a very destructive lifestyle. And he wanted to change, but he just could see no way out. And in his 20-something years of life, he'd never been more than 10 miles from the place that we stood. And I shared the gospel. I tried to cast a vision for a different life than the one he was living. And as I got near ready to come home, I offered to buy him a bus ticket to Wichita, help him find a job. His situation was dangerous. And he stood there in despair. He was surrounded by forces that were pulling him down. And the thought of leaving, to me, this Wichita kid was just get on a bus. It's not that complicated. But to him, it was impossible to imagine. It'd be like saying, just fly to the moon. He couldn't comprehend life outside that neighborhood. And I, understood, I understand he could have been changed there. He, as far as I know, he, at that time, he didn't embrace the gospel. And I know that moving to Wichita wouldn't have automatically changed his heart. But he was stuck in a place physically, but he was stuck in that place mentally and spiritually. And as embodied beings, we live in a place and a time. God alone transcends space and time. But like my friend, we can live, so to speak, in a physical place, and then we can live in a mental, spiritual place. A coach might say to a distracted athlete, where's your head at? And literally, hopefully, it's still attached to her body, but the idiomatic meaning is that while her body's on the court, her mind is in thoughts or somewhere else. And so right now, your body exists in this room, but I have no idea where your mind is. It could be out wandering the cosmos somewhere. And so we're all very used to living on planet Earth. It's all we've ever known. And even if you've traveled widely on the planet, relatively speaking, considering the size of the universe, you haven't been very far from here. For Lord of the Rings fans, we're all a lot more like hobbits than rangers. We've become accustomed to the Shire. This is normal. But if we don't do the mental, spiritual work to push ourselves to contemplate the larger realities of the gospel, of realities outside our everyday experience, then we're limiting our perspective. And as we'll see next week in 1 Peter, we're limiting our joy and our impact and our resiliency and our understanding of the Bible and the gospel. So we can be like my friend who would not get on the bus to Wichita just seemed impossible to him. He couldn't imagine a life apart from the place he had lived his entire existence. And Peter, who was a close friend and companion of Jesus, he failed Jesus after making a brash boast was restored by the Lord, became a leader in the newly birthed church. He's written two letters. And as I read his letters for the umpteenth time again this week, I could imagine him standing on my little corner of the planet saying, Terry, there is more, you know, a lot more. And my response was, hypothetically, yeah, Peter, I know, but this is all I've ever known. It's hard to push myself out of my little, my little envelope. And I can imagine Peter saying, yeah, I'm not the one to judge. I mean, you can literally read my story in the Gospels and the Acts, and it's, it's not pretty sometimes. But as you live in your place and time, you have to learn to live as an exile here. You have to learn to live as a sojourner. You can't let the world shrink down to the size of your own experiences. And that's what First Peter, Second Peter is going to be 
pushing us to do. Let me read the, the introduction to this letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were ex- elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, some skeptics have questioned whether Jesus, act, Peter actually wrote this letter, and the primary argument is that Peter would have given more first-hand stories of his time with Jesus. And he had some cool stories to tell. So why do they think that? Because that's what they would have done. But that's always a silly argument because they're not Peter and they're missing his larger purposes. They're thinking of what we would expect from today's perspective. Today we would expect something like a book tour. My experience with Jesus the Messiah, Peter, a.k.a. the rock. But Peter doesn't do this because as a witness, he's testifying to Jesus, not to himself. And of course, there's nothing wrong with telling your story, but the gospel is the life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus. And Peter, I'm sure, probably told his friends lots of stories about his time with Jesus, but when Peter went to write the church, a church about to suffer a great deal, he stuck with the facts that could sustain and change them. It's like Paul, he wrote, we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for his sake. So again, there's a place for personal stories and experiences, and Paul gives some in his letters, but that's not Peter's purpose. He's writing something timeless, written in time, but meant to be timeless. And at the end of this first letter, he tells us his purpose. He says, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. He's saying, I'm giving you the gospel in practical form so you would stand fast. And there's a tendency to start with my experience and then go to the Bible and seek to understand it from them. And this is problematic because it's backwards. We start with the Bible, then we seek to understand understand what we're seeing in the world. To start with me, my time, my experience, my current events, then go to the Bible is going to result in some stunted views, both of my experiences and of the Bible. The Bible is going to end up looking much like my life, small and inadequate, and my life just won't make sense. So we have to get on the bus, so to speak. We have to venture beyond ourselves. Starting with the Bible doesn't mean that we can easily make sense out of everything around us. That's nonsense. But we do have an adequate framework for everything that we see in the world. And by starting with the Bible, I don't mean pulling verses out of context. Grab a verse here and apply it there. Grab a verse, get the newspaper out and grab a verse and try to apply it to that what you see. That's not what I mean. I mean, looking at life through the lens of the gospel and the whole of Scripture. What's the framework given from Genesis to Revelation? That's the lens by which we look at the li- our, our lives and the world around us. What's, what are the implications for that for my job, church, marriage, physical pain, mowing your grass, funerals, all of it? We start with the Bible, then we go make sense out of what we're seeing in the world. And I've told the story before, but it was one of the one of the many profound experiences I had where I, that lens helped me. I stood, I was participating in a funeral service. It was a snowy Kansas cornfield, chill factor below zero. The, the funeral, it was the funeral of a man who had taken his own life. And above the sound of the bugle playing taps, the howl of the wind, I could hear the wails of his 13-year-old daughter. It was a picture of utter desolation. And I felt myself, I felt like as I'm standing there, the wind blowing, I can hear all this, feel all this, that evil wins. That's what it felt like. Then you can take that experience, go back and say, okay, 
Try to prove yourself to me, God. But what happened was I took what I knew of the gospel. I began to pray. I began to remember and quote scripture. And I started seeing what I was seeing through the lens of the gospel. And that's happened many times to me in my life. It doesn't make what I'm seeing easy, but it does make it more clear. And the message of Peter and the other apostles, apostles were witnesses to the resurrected Christ, was not their individual testimonies about what the resurrection means to me. What's it mean to you, Peter? What's it mean to you, Paul? The message was, here's what the Lord has said about his own work. They could see him live. They could see him die. They saw him raised from the dead. But he had to tell them what it all meant. And so Peter, in his letters, was preparing the church for trial. Terrible testing was coming. And he was preparing them for living through those with a strong hope in Christ. And so before we walk through this passage in more detail, I want to talk about an important phrase that describes how the Bible presents life in the kingdom now. It's an interpretive grid for looking at the scriptures. And then how a non-biblical alternative can make life more confusing and the Bible more confusing. And the phrase is complex, so bear with me. The phrase is inaugurated eschatology. And I hate to use that term because it's technical, but I do think it's an important term to be familiar with. If you've been around, you've heard me describe it as already not yet. The kingdom of God is already not yet. Inaugurated just means it started. It's already began, but not completed. Eschatology is the study of the end. The eschaton is the Greek word for end. L-O-G-Y always means the study of something. So it refers to the study of the final stage in God's work to bring his kingdom come, his will be done. And biblically, the kingdom of God has already begun. It's already come at Christ's first advent. And we live in the last days. The, the end, the, the eschaton, the end has begun. But the kingdom has not come in its fullness. It'll come in its fullness at his second advent. And so what's confusing is we, we, we read the Bible, and how do you make sense out of this? Well, it's because we live in the middle of the end. The end has begun. The end is yet to be finished. And so we experience life in the kingdom now, in our lives, in our churches, and we're changed, we're being changed, but we're not completely changed yet. We're bringing change in the world around us, but the world is not completely changed. So what we do now in this inaugurated, already not yet kingdom of God is we do good work at work. We love our families. We mentor kids, foster children, help immigrants, build a local church, send people overseas, invest in the hurting. And all this, we're sharing the gospel. We go out into our spheres of influence and we make the gospel. We tell people about Jesus. The kingdom of God has come, but it's not come in completeness. So we live between the advents, we live in the already not yet. That's inaugurated eschatology. And out of the view that confuses things, it's sometimes called a realized eschatology or a utopian view of life now. Realized means we expect the kingdom in all of its full power and all of its full experience right now. Rather than already not yet, it's already. So church life should be perfect. Our, Sometimes I'll hear it said, like, we need to be more like the early church. And I read, have you ever read about the early church? We're just like them. Our lives should be more perfect. Have you ever read the lives of the apostles? We should not experience disease or discomfort. We should have constant experiences of peace and pleasure and success. And I'm thinking, have you read the Bible? It should be easier to get along with each other. We should agree more. Have you read Corinthians? 
So the church should be changing the world in more visible and perceptible ways. And if you bring this utopian, realized eschatology to Peter, the Bible as a whole, you're not going to make sense out of what he's saying. And you're going to be continually disillusioned by what you see in the world. It won't make sense to you. It's one of the common causes of people leaving their faith or reinterpreting their faith to match their experience. Peter's writing when trouble is brewing for the church and terrible widespread sufferings about to come. Emperor Nero's about to look for a scapegoat for his political problems and his gaze is going to fall on the church. And he will literally use living Christians to light his garden parties. He will light them, put them on poles and light them on fires. Other similar horrible things are coming. And if they believe that becoming Christians means the kingdom has come in fullness now, they're going to be unprepared for the world as it is. And so he's going to write them, therefore, prepare your minds for action. 1 Peter 1.13, be self-controlled and set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. There's hope now, but your hope is eschatological. It's fully then. And then he's going to say, he's going to write to them in chapter 4, verses 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as if something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. That's future tense. So a realized eschatology, and you know what that phrase means now, doesn't make for resilient Christians. The opposite is true. It means that we're surprised when we face trouble. And Peter says, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering. Well, Peter, we always are. But as soon as we get over that initial shock, then we go back and say, okay, i got to make sense out of this based on what the gospel says. We can't be disillusioned when relationships are not perfect, when we don't agree on everything, when we're not making headlines for changing the world. The church in the time of Peter was changing the world in dramatic ways, but all the good stuff was off the cultural radar. If they had newspapers then, or if they had websites then, what it would have said, the church is depraved, the church is anti-government, the church set the fire that burned down Rome in 64. That's what Nero said. Nero scapegoated the church for the fire that burned down most of the city. And he used that to begin to murder Christians to halt their growing influence. So that happened in 64. Peter probably wrote this letter in 62 or 63. They needed gospel hope for what was coming. And that's always what the church needs most. Gospel truth applied in their lives. In 1900, 1900 to like 1902, there was what was called the Boxer Rebellion in China, they were called boxers because they used martial arts, physical um, fighting as a part of their training. But this was a group of Chinese who became very anti-foreigner and specifically anti-Christian. And they began to um, torture and kill Christians across the country. And some Christians who in the church there were shocked and disillusioned because they didn't believe this could happen to the church. They had bought into, at the time, a relatively new view, dispensationalism, that taught that the church is going to be raptured, taken out. They won't go through any kind of terrible tribulation. Well, this was localized. It wasn't global, but it was pretty terrible for those who were being tortured and died, and they were unprepared. Their approach to thinking about their lives and the world left them unprepared. And Peter wants the church to be prepared, so he focuses them on timeless truth for their lives. Now go back to his introduction. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. 
Peter was an apostle. He was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. And this isn't about his bragging rights, but his qualifications for writing with authority. He's writing as one who knows what he knows directly from the Son of God. And he isn't going to give an initial presentation of the gospel in his letter. He's unpacking the gospel because the gospel of Mark was already circulating. Peter probably had a hand in writing that. So now he's writing to deepen the church's understanding of how to apply the gospel to their lives. He's writing to a church made up of mostly non-Jewish converts to Christ in what we would now call Turkey. And he calls them elect exiles or God's elect strangers in the world or sojourners. And you can see some of Peter's personal gospel transformation in his description because he used to not think that non, he used to think that non-Jews couldn't be accepted by God. He had this long-term bias built into him. And now he understands the good news is for everyone. And these believers are the people of God. They are the elect people of God. They are the elect exiles of the dispersion. And the word in the Greek is diaspora. And the word's familiar to us because we have heard that word used in modern times. In the World War II, the, the, Nazi caused, the, the Nazis caused the diaspora. There's a Ukrainian diaspora going on because of Russia's horrible aggression. It's where people are dispersed from their homeland. And what's interesting is that these believers in Turkey were, like my friend in New York, likely to never have traveled more than a few miles from where they were born. And yet they're being called these sojourners, these dispersed exiles. And it's because they're no longer in their true homes, even in their, they're in their birth homes, they're not in their true homes. They've been made citizens of another country. And what this means is if they grasp this, they're more, not less, positioned to change the world around them. Because you don't change that which you're addicted to. You don't change that which you're trapped in. You can only change the world when you no longer need its approval. And so the more we live as sojourners, the more impact we can have. And this is counterintuitive to culture because it's commonly believed that people who have more and more set their minds on heaven are less and less good on earth. But that's not the way it happens historically. People whose hearts and minds are more and more set on their eternal home are more positioned to do good in space and time because this is not all they have. They don't have to hold on to it desperately as it slips away because they know this is not their final home. So Christians have gone and sacrificed and built hospitals and brought in written languages where there wasn't a written language. They fought the end slavery. Many other important changes brought empowered by eternal perspective. If this life is all you have, then you have no permanent home, just this temporary home. You're in exile with no homeland. And when you run out of time, you're finished. It's up for you. And so there are three main approaches to life now, and there's variations on these themes but we'll call one addiction, another detachment, another sojourner. Addiction is what you most commonly see, I would say, in the West. One author describes this approach using the myth of Tantalus. We get, our, we get the word tantalizing from it. And the myth of Tantalus was this guy who was cursed by the gods for who knows what. He, you, you could make the gods, the Greek gods, very mad and, and you'd have this eternal misery. So he was standing in, a, in, a, in water and he had a fruit tree hanging over him and he'd reach for fruit and the branch would go whoop and then he'd reach for the water and go whoop so he's forever living surrounded by nourishment and never able to experience it and the idea is this addiction approach to life on earth is how much is enough a little bit more it's tantalizing satisfaction is always just out of reach 
The detachment approach would be seen in the Buddha where his hands are often portrayed as folded. He's not reaching out like Tantalus, but it's not because he's content, it's because he's living in resignation. That's not the same thing. For the Buddhist, life is suffering. Suffering is caused by desire. You eliminate suffering by eliminating desire. And you see that approach. Some people just become, I don't care. But the sojourner approach is like what Jesus said, is in the world but not of it. We experience contentment in growing fashion. We're to move towards contentment. Paul talked about that a lot in Philippians. We enjoy the world as God has given it to us. And when we experience suffering and trouble, we don't detach. We enter into the suffering of the world and people. And when we lose health or wealth or even life itself, we know it's not the end of good. We are sojourners, not permanent citizens here. And so Peter, this eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ, writing to these chosen sojourners, said they've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And the foreknowledge of God, that phrase is not meant to take the church into the theological laboratory to fight over God's sovereignty and human choice. He's telling them that phrase to give them comfort and confidence. Now, I'm not saying discussions of God's sovereignty and human choice aren't important. I'm saying they're not Peter's point here. His main point is these are people who are about to be, some of them burned alive for their faith. And there's very little comfort in nuanced discussions of theology. Truth matters, but the truth that matters here is you are God's chosen people. You're exiles in a land that you only thought was home. And now your hostile home is turning on you. And so in accordance with what's happening to you, all of it is in accordance with the foreknowledge and fatherly love of God for his own dear people. So he packs the reality of the triune God, God the Father, Son, and Spirit, into this single sentence. So you are elect exiles according to God's foreknowledge. You are God's chosen people. Just like you guys heard about and read about in the Old Testament, how God took them from slavery, protected them. You're those people now. And these Gentiles would have been been shocked and comforted to know we are God's people. And so he's taking care of us now. What's happening to you and what's about to happen to you is going to maybe look like God doesn't love you, but you are his chosen people. And we all know that when trouble comes, we can lose our bearings. Years ago, I read a book called Against All Hope. It's the memoir of a man who spent 22 years in Castro's Cuban prison system. And he wasn't in prison for a crime. He was in prison by the criminal who ran Cuba, as was and is often the case in communist regimes. And he writes of terrible suffering, the persecution of Christians. And then in the midst of that horrible, horrible suffering, he saw all these acts of grace and courage and faith and sacrifice. And so the title of his book was Against All Hope. It comes from Romans 4, where Paul wrote, Against all hope, in hope, Abraham believed. Say, I thought you said against all hope. Yeah, against all hope, in hope, he believed. you got to love that. And that perspective has empowered Christians to suffer and remain faithful through the ages. It's a real hope now. A full hope is yet to come. And as his chosen people, he's going to finish the work he began in us. It's up to us to cooperate and collaborate. That's what that great word sanctification means. It's that lifelong process empowered by the Holy Spirit in line with our choices to become more like Jesus. So we're chosen by God, sanctified by the Spirit to live lives of obedience to Christ. And all through the New Testament, 
God wants us to see that obedience is more about opportunity than mere obligation. The way people outside the faith see our, us, our desire to obey, they see that as just this unrealistic obligation. And as you grow in Christ and you see the beauty of what it means to obey him, I see what it looks like in my marriage to obey him. It works way better to do things like he thinks is smart rather than what I think is smart. You start seeing obedience as opportunity. It's not just obligation. We get to live lives of obedience. We get to live lives that align with God's good purposes. And then when we fail to obey, we get to experience forgiveness. That phrase, sprinkling with his blood, in the context, it's not referring back to the initial justification, the initial part of our salvation. It's referring to the ongoing need for, for, for forgiveness that we have the opportunity to receive. So we've already been fully forgiven. We've already been empowered for obedience but will not yet fully obey. We're not yet fully changed. And so we don't turn the opportunity of obedience into merely the obligation of obedience. We see it as a gift. If you think about it, if you're going to live, you're obligated to eat. Now, if you're hungry, do you see food as an obligation? I see it as an opportunity. And so this is how we have to see. If you're going to live, you have to obey. But once you start seeing obedience as food, as life, it starts shifting your perspective. That's how he wants us to see it. So we've already been changed. We're not yet fully changed. And we're going to continue to sin. This is not an excuse to sin, but a reality. So we keep turning to Christ for ongoing forgiveness. And even the most mature Christian is painfully aware of remaining sin in his or her life. In fact, probably the more mature you are, the more you start seeing sin in your life. Not that, not you're, not that you're sinning more, but you got going, that attitude it's terrible. That selfishness is terrible. So God's purpose of obedience to Jesus will never be completely fulfilled in this life. Not an excuse, it's a reality. But thankfully, we have the continued forgiveness of Christ in our lives. Then he concludes his introduction with a common New Testament blessing, Paul's favorite blessing, grace and peace be multiplied to yours or yours in abundance. And this is a, f- a favorite of Paul's. It's a combination of the Old Testament blessing of peace coupled with the New Testament blessing of grace. And Peter hopes and prays that God's peace, in spite of what's coming to them, and God's unmerited favor, his ongoing grace, would be multiplied and fill their moments. And so now I can see Peter saying, okay, you guys ready? He rolled up your sleeves. Okay, let's dig in. And we'll dig in next week. Let's land for today, though. In one of John's letters, we'll get to it later in this year, He beautifully ties together these themes of opportunity to obey, ongoing forgiveness, and what that means for relationships. 1 John 1, 7. I've used this passage in in, um, wedding ceremonies many times over the years. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his son purifies us from all sin. And so I'll tell the the about-to-be, the bride and groom, I'll say, if you walk in the light, if you walk in the light, you're going to have fellowship with one another as you're walking towards Jesus. And then as you're walking together in the light, the blood of Jesus is going to purify you from all sin, and you're going to need a whole bunch of that because you're going to sin against each other a bunch. And so the beauty of this is this is is a life God wants for us. There's no perfection here. We, We need ongoing forgiveness, but there is a settled direction. We're going to walk in the light, and walking in the light is going to lead to us walking together, and we're going to experience ongoing forgiveness from Christ.
ongoing fellowship, and forgiveness of one another. So let me pray using this passage today. God, we give thanks as your chosen sojourners in the world, according to your eternal will, and through the ongoing transformation to become like Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, for the purpose of full obedience to Jesus Christ, with full assurance of ongoing cleansing and acceptance when we fail. And may the grace and peace of God be multiplied in every moment of our lives. Amen.